Welcome to the Makom Israel Teachers Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners with Israel by discussing and exploring current events and relevant issues. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How you doing, Alan? Doing great, Mike. All right. And today, our guest by Zoom. Alan, would you introduce our guest? Kalev Bendor, who's uh, also on our faculty and um, uh, developed a new course for us this year, is also a... Uh, a uh, analyst, a security analyst, a politics analyst, um, and is here to help us uh, try and figure out what the heck is going on with uh, um, Israel and the <laughs> settlements and the territories and the Palestinians. Um, even though you know it's it's sort of creeping up there in the news. Um, well, how you, first of all, how you quite... doing, Khalif? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Really okay, good. To, we really appreciate you coming. As Alan's saying, we're very confused about this issue. Uh, we're, well, I, it's not so much that we're confused. We're troubled by the fact that the Palestinian Authority has said that because Israel is talking about annexing some of the areas of the West Bank, they are ending security cooperation between the Palestinian Authority and the Israelis. So we were hoping you could help our listeners understand that a little bit better and help clear up some of our confusion as well. So we appreciate you coming. try. Yeah. So first <laughs> of all, I think I think people, and, and maybe maybe I'm misreading it, but I think a lot of people don't really get how much security cooperation there is between the IDF, the Israeli army, and the Palestinian Authority. I think people find that confusing because they think of them as in conflict. What's the story with that communication? How long has that coordination and coordination been going on? What forms does it take? What are their joint operations? Can you give us some yes, background? I think, I, I think I think that's that's a very good point. I mean, if, <coughs> if we look at the kind of history between the Israelis and the Palestinians since Oslo, you had uh, Yasser Arafat in charge uh, for many many years. Um, there, 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 were, there were bombings in the mid nineteen nineties that then at a certain stage turned into a, a second intifada between 2000 and 2004. Um, and after Arafat left the scene, Mahmoud Abbas came in and, and Abbas, who was, was part of the same generation as Arafat, but he far, he in, even during the intifada, he, he rejected the idea of armed conflict, not necessarily for moral reasons, more for strategic reasons, but, but he rejected it. Um, and so certainly now for many years, there's been quite close coordination between uh, the IDF and Palestinian security forces, certainly in the West Bank, Gaza is controlled by, by Hamas. And, and these forces, they, they get training from the Americans, they get training from the British. I think even the Canadians are involved uh, in some form or another. And, and this helps Israeli security uh, in a lot of ways. They share uh, intelligence with one another. In some ways, Hamas is this uh, enemy of both of them. Uh, in many ways, during uh, what many people call the the, the knife intifada, um, the PA arrested a third of suspected uh, suspected assailants. Uh, they were reported to have prevent, prevented kind of up to two hundred terrorist attacks against Israel. So, so this is this is significant stuff. It's it, it's important uh, in the sense that it helps Israel to um, to keep its citizens safe and, and to keep kind of the West Bank more or less under control. So the announcement that... I, I just add one other thing. Uh, public opinion in the West Bank is very opposed to 
security coordination. They're in many ways seen as collaborators. They, in some Who's ways, make opinion? it easier for Israel to maintain its occupation. That's kind of the the, the, the argument. You mean Palestinian? Um, Did you, but Abbas, Palestinian but, but public Abbas opinion. has. Yes, Palestinian public opinion. But Abbas has consistently pushed back against that Palestinian public opinion and maintained security coordination um, until now. So the fact that there's been an announcement that it is no longer going on uh, is a very significant move. Now, is so, it just... Can, can I... Yeah, go ahead. So I guess, uh, when I've often had this conversation with my students, especially back, uh, do I remember during like what you called the knife intifada, when people calling the knife intifada, whatever, we had a, a, the rash of knifings and ter- an uptick in terror. Car terror rammings. Attacks. Car rammings, good, right? People would say, oh, is this another intifada? I, and so my general response was, look, yeah, this is not good. Terrorist attacks are always bad and an uptick is really bad. But you'll know when th- there's a real change on the ground when uh, Palestinian security forces stop cooperating with Israeli security forces, because that's what's really keeping it. And that was something that really distinguished the second Intifada is that the Palestinian security forces not only stopped coordinating, but turned their guns on Israeli forces. So, I mean, I think so how much is right that the recent announcement and not only announcement, but actual actions of steps have been taken to stop that that uh, that coordination, how serious is it now? And your how far opinion? along are we? How reversible is yeah. it? Or is this is this it? We're locked into a, a, cor- uh, a no, separation. Well, listen, I think we I, I think we often we often predict violence that that doesn't end up happening. Uh, and in many ways, the status quo has has this ability to. Everyone says the status quo is is. Uh, can't continue, but then it, it kind of does. Um, so I don't think I don't think there's anything that's irreversible. But again, this is part of a larger story. It's part of a story um, that the Israeli government is pushing. Uh, what people in the international community call annexation, what uh, many Israelis or some Israelis call sovereignty or extending Israeli law and jurisdiction over settlements in the West Bank. Um, and for the Palestinians, this is really a would be a, an absolute nightmare and disaster. And I think, I think probably the best way of seeing it is, and in fact, the Palestinians have said this themselves. This is signalling, so signalling to the Israelis that they're the, the Palestinian Authority does not have many cards up its sleeve, um, but the stopping of security cooperation is something that harms both the Palestinians but also the Israelis. And I think. This decision is is signaling to the Israelis that you need to understand there are certain there's not many things we can do that can hurt you, but there's some things we can do that can hurt you. And if you move ahead with these annexation moves, uh, and and the government has talked about potentially uh, beginning in in July, then th- this is going to get worse. So I think this is absolutely reversible. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near as bad as it could get, but I think it's it's an important signal that uh, policymakers should be aware of. Palestine is showing, listen, there, there's certain things we can do that, that can make your life significantly harder. Now, I, I understand, I mean, it's pretty obvious how it would make things worse for Israelis. If the Palestinian Authority isn't helping reduce terrorism, then that would make life worse for Israelis. What is in it for the Palestinians? And why do they do this? You said there are strategic reasons, if not moral. And also, what would harm them if they stop? Like, what's the what? What price are they paying, or is it only on the Israeli side? No, I think the biggest potential price the Palestinians are paying is 
is Hamas strengthening in the West Bank? Uh, again, many people will know, but uh, the Fatah movement, which is which is primarily the Palestinian Authority, is in control in the West Bank, and Gaza is controlled by Hamas. Um, but Hamas has a, a presence in the West Bank, and it's primarily due to the IDF being on the ground and security coordination with, with the Palestinian Authority that Hamas has been able to, to, to be kept under control. The biggest threat for the Palestinian Authority is that without IDF cooperation, Hamas could get strengthened. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a crazy scenario in which Hamas take over, although I don't think that's realistic at, at the moment. Um, so yes, there's absolutely a price that the Palestinian Authority pay. There's also, in theory, just kind of more violence on the street, which if you're, a, I don't know, an 85-year-old Palestinian leader with a legitimacy deficit and deeply unpopular... As, Towards as the end of his is, rule, probably, because we're probably... He's not a young fellow. Not a young fellow, a chain smoker for, for decades, etc. It, it, can, it, it can lead to unseen... Uh, scenarios that are dangerous for the PA. But if you're sitting in Ramallah and you see Israeli promises to annex large areas of the West Bank as um, almost a, a death blow to the Palestinian national movement, and you are trying to get the international community to coalesce around opposition, and, and clearly the Trump administration is is at best ambivalent to your um, needs, and you're trying to encourage the Russians and the EU and the Arab world, um, and in some ways to try and deter the Israeli government, there's not that many things you can do. So, yes, stopping security coordination is not a good thing for the Palestinians, but they don't really have that many cards up their sleeves. And, and this this is something that, that is deeply unpopular within Palestinian society and... Um, probably their best bet at the moment to try and signal to the Israelis that, you know, you need you need to realize that this has major security repercussions. I mean, one, I think it tells you a lot about the Palestinian street that what Israel's talking about annexing are things that were really, not really beyond the boundaries of what in negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians during the Oslo process would have been annexed to Israel anyway. But I think image-wise, if Abbas lets that annexation happen unilaterally without a deal, or they weren't even re really able to come to a deal. And so, no, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm not so sure that's true what you're saying, because what I understand is they're talking about 25 to 30% of the West Bank being annexed. Where yeah. in Oslo, we were talking about like 5%, 10%. Well, we're talking, because the entire yeah. Jordan Valley issue is, is in addition to the Jewish yeah. settlement. So that, in other words, if Israel said, well, yeah, that's huge. let's leave out the Jordan Valley. But that was also still a negotiation because they needed to keep a military presence there. In other words, it's the changing of the status quo that's shattering the legitimacy. In other words, everyone's agreed. Nobody's getting what they want. We're all miserable in this status quo. But if somebody changes the status quo, then the Palestinians need to do something also. Now, short of attacking and, and, and creating an intifada, passively not coordinating stopping one, is his way of threading that needle? I mean, well, isn't it? There, there, there were a lot of things that, that, that were just said, which, yeah. which are all correct. I think, I think there's a significant difference between Israel gaining territory 
through a unilateral annexation and gaining it through uh, a negotiation. Sure. Uh, agreed with the Palestinians. Um, the, the percentage issue is, is an interesting debate because, um, and this is kind of deeply ironic, but one of the things ironically could, could stop the Israeli government doing this is uh, a right-wing backlash that not enough territory yeah. will be annexed. Um, but, you know, clearly there's a spectrum between uh, what people call settlement blocks, which in Israel are seen as a consensus, but but in the international community are not are not seen as a consensus at all. The Jordan Valley, um, other areas deeper inside the West Bank, and in some ways for the greater land of Israel supporters, there's no distinction between any of those things. You know, there's no distinction between uh, Efrat kind of, 20 minutes uh, from Jerusalem and Shiloh deep deep in the heart of Samaria. Um, so I think that there's a significant difference between between annexing unilaterally and gaining territories as part of an agreement. But I also think within Palestinian society, there are two, there are two ongoing, there's two arguments. There's an argument based on, on, on two competing ideas. How do you get, how do you liberate territory? Do you liberate territory through fighting? Israel, which is what Hamas says, or do you liberate territory through negotiating with Israel? Now, Hamas have actually got a couple of strings to their bow in this argument. You know, the the argument is Israel withdrew from Gaza after we attacked them. Israel withdrew from South Lebanon after Hezbollah attacked them. And the Palestinian Authority is based around the other argument. We liberate territory through negotiation. In some ways, if Palestinian statehood is not going to happen... There's just no need that the whole the whole need for the Palestinian Authority to exist basically just collapses. So if Israel does go ahead with this unilateral thing, and this is actually what some of the opponents, Israeli opponents of annexation are arguing, the Palestinian Authority might just collapse. Um, but certainly on a domestic Palestinian argument, why do we need why do we need you, Palestinian Authority? Right. If you're not going to deliver statehood, if you're not going to prevent Israel from annexing Through diplomacy. At- West Bank territory. Then, then what? Are, what are you doing? There's just there's no need for you anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a complete loss of legitimacy. Yeah, you're you're the guy. But I mean, ironically, it's sort of a an other side of the coin of Israel's left saying we'll bring you peace with the Palestinians through diplomacy, and the PA is saying we'll bring territory to the Palestinians through diplomacy. The Israeli left collapsed because it lost a lot of legitimacy because it didn't bring peace. Palestinians could lose legitimacy because they can't bring land. And in fact, if Israel annexes, they're losing land. It's a, it's, I mean, listen, this it's an ironic a parallel. I mean, yeah, this just, touches it, on a longer it, discussion, which I'm not sure whether you want to get into now, of, of kind of why annexation as a, as a paradigm, as an ideology has risen. But I think part of it is... Because the whole idea of, of, of land for peace uh, in some ways got discredited that even the Israeli left, um, which doesn't really exist, I call it the, the center-center left, <coughs> they talk about um, an end to occupation. They talk about the need for separation. Uh, they talk about the, the diplomatic and the moral and even the security costs of continued control, etc. They don't talk about peace anymore. Uh, and there's a reason for that, which is that I think a lot of Israelis have stopped believing in this concept of peaceful coexistence. So there still may be a need to end occupation, but we're not going to get peace. 
But once you take peace out of the land for peace uh, um, paradigm, if you're not going to get peace, why should we? Why should we give any land? And I think a lot of the Israeli public is in that place. And I think when the ideology of of land for peace got eroded, it created space for a different paradigm, which is sovereignty now. Let, let's let's annex this territory because either we believe in the greater land of Israel or, or whatever it's for. And I think that's one reason why uh, the debate on annexation has risen is because the Israeli public has um, kind of sobered up to this idea that even if control over the West Bank isn't really in our interest, we're not going to get peace at the end of it. If we're not going to get peace, we're much less willing to to trade land. And, and how much is the... What, oh, go ahead, Alan. I was just wondering if how much of this do you think is out of the ramifications of the withdrawal from Gaza and false expectations. What? I thought we were going to ask the same question. I had a different question. Go ahead. And the false expectations that were built around there that were going out of Gaza and we're going to get peace when it really wasn't that, that the move from Gaza was also a unilateral move and not under negotiation. So I think... Again, I mean, if 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 we if we kind of imagine competing paradigms, and we've got one paradigm of bilateral negotiations with American mediation um, that will end, which will bring to to an end of conflict with the Palestinians, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and that was in some ways tried um, in Oslo, leading up to Camp David. That that was one time it happened. A second time it happened was under Olmert. Uh, during the Annapolis process, and a third time it happened was actually Netanyahu Abbas and, and Kerry uh, in the in the Obama administration, and those all failed. Now, why they failed, we could be here all day. The Israelis will say one thing, the Palestinians another, the Americans another, but the fact is, they they failed three times. Um, that undermines the idea that a bilateral negotiation can bring you an end of conflict. What then became in vogue. Was was a, were unilateral moves, unilateral withdrawal, uh, and in many ways, um, Gaza and what happened after Gaza in terms of Hamas taking over and, and rockets really undermined that idea. Um, I mean, it, it, I'm sure you guys remember, but in 2006 in the elections, which Olmert won, he won based on a platform of I'm going to unilaterally withdraw from the West Bank. And and and, and he got, you know, they didn't get 40 seats. They ended up, I think, with 20, 28 or 29. But you know, that was the largest party. That became very much out of vogue after Gaza and after the withdrawal from Lebanon. And then you had a kind of this regional idea of we bring the, 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 the uh, Arab countries uh, into the negotiations and they kind of help the Palestinians to make concessions. And it's not just the Israelis are trading land, but the Israelis are, are, are trading land. But then they're also getting um, all of these relations with, with the Saudis and with the Emiratis, etc. Regional et normalization. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so I think all of these things are, are, are competing paradigms, but the bilateral one has been undermined by three tries that failed, regardless of the reasons. The unilateral one was also undermined. The regional one, in my personal opinion, I think makes a lot of strategic sense, but it requires deep territorial withdrawals, which the Israeli public, for I think good reasons, when they look around the the region, aren't really in the mood for. And so when you have all of these paradigms kind of falling, it it creates space for the rise of a new one. And uh, 
Um, I would say right also that the regional the regional approach also has been receiving pretty bad blows from the Palestinian uh, side. Like when the UAE sent a direct flight to Israel with a shipment for Palestinians, and they won't take the aid and the food and the medication because it was directly to Israel. I think that was the Palestinian signal of we're not going to play with any regional yes. change uh, well, of tone. Listen, I mean, the, the Palestinians are worried that the Israelis are going to normalize with the Arabs with, without making peace. That's kind of their big fear. But I think just for, for many years, the right wing uh, w- would be seen, would be perceived as they just said no. They said no to Oslo, no to Palestinian state, no to territorial withdrawal. And, and what the sovereignty movement really was, was an attempt to say yes to, to bring their own ideas, of, mm-hmm. of yes to something. Yes to the idea of of, of, um, of extending Israeli sovereignty onto on, on all of these areas of the West Bank. And it's quite a broad tent within the right wing um, um, with different arguments about how much territory should it begin, should it begin just with Area C, should it be everything, what sort of rights or, or, or national rights or, or civil or human rights should we be giving to the resident? That's a big debate. But suddenly the sovereignty movement has, has I think, partially because of Trump oh. and my personal opinion, partially because of Netanyahu seeing it as a vote winner. Um, but but suddenly this this paradigm has, has come to the fore and it's, it's what everyone's talking about all of a sudden. So can you explain what you mean by that? What, what How much of this timing has to do with the end of the first Trump term and possibly the last term of Trump's administration coming to a close? So all of a sudden we got this target of moving on things by July yeah, so we so this again, you know, there's when we talk about Israeli-Palestinian uh, things, there's there's facts and there's opinions. So this is very much an opinion; it's not a mm-hmm. fact. Um, to me, it, the the core question is is about Netanyahu and 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 uh, greater and wiser people than us have discussed this. Is Netanyahu is he an ideologue? Um, what is is he a greater land of Israel person? What is his view actually on the West Bank? Because this is someone who. Um, he opposed Oslo, mm-hmm. but then as prime minister signed two agreements with the Palestinians to, to transfer land. He's someone who um, voted uh, for... Seriously, Hebron. Yeah. Hebron, right? absolutely. Not just yes. land, Hebron. Yeah, not, like, just, not just any like land. Like right. talking about... Yeah. Absolutely. This is someone who voted for disengagement, um, but then went to the press and said he, he opposed it. This is someone who promises people that he won't uproot any settlements but froze settlements for 10 months and was open to a Kerry document that that uh, under Obama that, that would have entailed a large withdrawal. So it's very difficult to pin Netanyahu down. Now, Naftali Bennett, uh, who's now a political rival, but at that time was his aide when he was, um, when he was leader of the opposition, uh, tells a story that they went to Samaria and as they're there, they're standing on a hill and they're overlooking everything. And, and, and Bennett says, this is amazing. This is essential. This is where Avraham walked. And Netanyahu says, this is essential. This protects Gush Dan. This protects the area of kind of Tel Aviv, etc., where the majority of Israelis live. And so Bennett says, for me, the West Bank is important because of religious reasons. For Netanyahu, it's important because of, of strategic reasons. Um, so there's, there's, there's this whole debate over where exactly Netanyahu is. Um, but there's a very cynical reading, which is Netanyahu is 
wherever will allow him to continue to be prime minister because, and this is in some ways kind of altruistic, because Netanyahu thinks he's the only person who can save the Jewish people. So he needs to be prime minister because he's doing us a favour by being prime minister. Um, and, and when you look at it that way, uh, I think Netanyahu identified that annexation sovereignty, well, I don't know if it genuinely was a vote winner, but he thought it was a vote winner in two tight elections in September and in, in March. And so suddenly, for the first time, more or less, in September 2019, annexation suddenly becomes on, on the agenda um, and it gets talked about a lot and he's trying to draw votes away from the more right-wing Yamina. Um, and so I think we now, in many ways, have a perfect storm of... Ah, sorry, one other thing. There's another debate it's about It's a perfect Ur storm, even. A perfect... Ur. Right. even a more a perfect, perfect storm. Yeah. So, sorry, there's another debate about Netanyahu. Did Netanyahu... Netanyahu, for many years, pushed back against the Likud Central Committee who wanted to promote annexation. And he said, the Americans won't let me. Mm -hmm. Now, was it that actually the Americans, he wanted to, but the Americans wouldn't let him? Or actually, was he using the Americans as an excuse because he realised that annexation brings with it significant problems and consequences? Now, the Americans won't let me has now been taken away. There's mm -hmm. no more Obama. Trump's in charge. And it seems that the you know, there's arguments over what exactly Israel would need to do before annexing, but more or less, there's there's certainly an amber light, maybe even a green light. So now that I mean Pompeo did been, put did put I think uh, I think Pompeo did kind of turn it from green to yellow, no? There, 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 there's listen, trying to work out what that administration yeah, thinks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is also difficult, um, yeah, best of but us. certainly there's not this American red light anymore. So no, I think you know if red. we want to try and work out what's going on, you've got uh, the sovereignty movement pushing hard. You've got the Americans no longer saying absolutely not. Mm -hmm. You've got Netanyahu realizing that it's a vote winner, mm -hmm. and as you said, Mike, you know no one knows what's going to happen in November. Um, with, with with Trump Biden stuff, and so there is a window of opportunity that may close. And I think when you put all of those things together, that's, that's why we're talking about July. Now, whether Netanyahu actually wants to do it or not, I, I, I genuinely have no idea. But, but he's certainly being pushed along by supporters and by his own rhetoric and by, uh, and by the fact that it is, this window is not going to be open forever. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Alan. So this is something that confuses me. I think I may have brought up on an earlier podcast, but uh, if I did, I'm sorry. But I don't understand this window thing, right? Let's just go, for example, for, you know, for argument's sake, Trump loses to Biden in November. Um, you know, and the administration changes. So this could become a very, very sticky point with the next administration just because mm – -hmm. Trump's administration said, OK, in July or August or September, it doesn't mean that a future American government can't backtrack that. And the rest of the world most likely is not going to be so favorable. I and mean, we've seen it's very nice Biden's that America moved the embassy. Yeah. And, and we've seen that the Americans, OK, move the embassy. OK, they're not going to probably move that back. Right. But how many other countries have moved their embassies to Jerusalem? Right. Um, it's not like the, the whole world got already... behind it. The right. EU it's was not already like looking what their response the would be. 
And yeah, by the way, the thawing like in the world that people the regional thawing and the temptation. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, this Zoom thing. But right, yeah. the, it's not like Trump is is like a great leader in the world, and everybody's going after him, saying, "Oh, if they're going to recognize it, then we'll go with him." No, no like who else is going to recognize this? So how can this be a window? I don't understand how this is a window. Is what I'm saying. It doesn't seem to me like a window. It seems like a huge. You know, gamble. Sorry, because the delay, I thought you were finished those times, but I wanted to add to what your point was. Yes, and that in the Arab world, we're looking at the possibility of normalization of a thawing and maybe of even some sort of growing relationship. This is very hard for Arab countries to, the Sunni Arab world, to build uh, a closer relationship with Israel if Israel starts unilaterally annexing. So it's the EU, it's the next administration possibly, and and the Arab world also that are, are, are so the window brings with it its its own dangers. So yeah, I, Jordan threatening the peace treaty, mm-hmm. right? So Alan, I'll 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 tweak I'll tweak your comment a little bit, yeah. and if it let's imagine that we that the prime minister is Menachem Begin, and it's the nineteen eighties, mm-hmm. and the Golan Heights is seen as a crucial. It's crucial that Israel uh, annexes right. it. The fact that the Americans are going to, if there is a, if there's something that is is a core national interest, it doesn't matter if the Americans are opposed. It doesn't matter if Reagan's opposed. It doesn't even matter if Reagan threatens you. If you think that this is an integral part of what you need to do, you do it regardless. So the fact that Trump may say yes, but Biden may say, the, the question really should be, does this further Israeli interests? Now, if you are a greater land of Israel advocate, um, well, actually, if you're a maximalist greater land of Israel advocate, this you may is actually say plan. no, mm-hmm. because annexing 30% and 70% being left to the Palestinians is, is a nightmare. If you are a moderate greater land of Israel advocate, I don't know if those two things exist, but if you are a moderate greater land of Israel advocate, center right. Center right. Or even further, middle right. Or, or just. No, it could just be practical. Take a little mm-hmm. bit now because it'll just develop. It could, like meaning- but, there, but there are but there are consequences to this, as you said. Yeah. There's a peace treaty with Jordan that is that is under threat. There is a peace treaty with Egypt, which probably isn't under threat, but we rely on the Egyptians for quite a lot in Sinai, etc. Um, as Mike pointed out, there are normal there are there's a there's an under the radar normalization with the Saudis, with the Emirates. Um, there's all sorts of opportunities with the EU um, that would, would, would get cancelled. Um, now, the truth is, kind of hand on heart, would the Russians really care? Would the Chinese care? Would the Indians care? No, probably not. I mean, they'd say stuff, but they, they probably wouldn't care, etc. But there, 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 is a, there, is a, there is a clear price to this. There's also a security price as well. And I think what a lot of... Um, IDF and kind of former officials are saying, they're saying, listen, the IDF is currently on the ground. No one's moving the IDF. The PA is currently on board. We're, we're cooperating with them. So what, what security-wise do you gain by annexation? You don't. You only undermine it. You undermine it with the PA. You undermine it with Jordan. You undermine it with the world. The only thing you gain is is territory. But if no one, as you said, if no one recognizes it, that's also a bit meaningless. So, so for me, this is, this is really a, another example of politics overriding policy. Um, again, I think if, if, it sums, if, anyone, if you support 
partition, which again, not everyone does, and that, that's a legitimate position, but if you support partition, it's kind of difficult to argue that now is the time that Israel needs to annex um, large areas of the West Bank against basically everyone in the world, apart from maybe the Trump administration, and but certainly everyone in the world, plus the Democratic nominee, um, plus the two Arab countries that you've got peace with, plus the entity that you're doing security court. It, it doesn't really pay unless the view is, you know, we, we, we're we opposed to partition and we, we, we're opposed to Palestinian state and we want a greater land of Israel. Then it kind of makes sense. But otherwise, to me, it's uh, it's more a sign of politics trumping uh, policy. Well, that's and that's where the 80s analogy that that last sentence is why the 80s analogy isn't exactly the right lens, I don't think, to understanding it. When you use that 80s analogy of, well, you know, in, in Begin and Reagan and and the Golan, I don't think we're in the 80s and this isn't Begin and this isn't no, Reagan. No, Begin, belie- Begin believed it. No, I understand. That's the point. And he was I don't, caught, I don't think here but, they believe it. But exactly. As you argued earlier, I don't know what Netanyahu believes because I don't know that he believes anything. I don't know that he's playing strategically. I think, you know, if he's tacking the wind to stay in power and, and, and only not applying a particular strategy that he believes in, but only choosing tactics that maintain some form of status quo that he can ride to control. Uh, and, and we always say we're against making predictions on this podcast, and yet we always end up doing it uh, because we think we're terrible at it. Even though our track record is not bad, I, I I would I am still deeply skeptical. I think that that with Netanyahu's holding of power, yes, he wants to distract from the trial, and he wants this to be. He knows that if there's a hot button issue that'll get Israelis arguing and take their mind off the trial, which we're all tired of talking about his corruption, which is to his advantage. This hot button issue is a great thing for us politically for him, but at the end of the day. He's he always like you were saying before. Oh, the president won't let me. You know, like a guy in a bar who doesn't want to be in the bar fight, but his honor is challenged. He tells his friends, you know, oh, stop holding me back. But really, he wants them to. So, I'm skeptical that this ultimately isn't going to end up being just another chapter in the ongoing sound and fury signifying nothing, and we end up in more or less the same status quo. What do you guys think? Well, I think. Uh I think I'm going to go the other way. Go ahead. Not just be contrary, but I've just I've been so shocked over the last three years of the Trump administration of things that I thought there's no way that could happen. They're just bucking the whole. There's you no know, way they're moving the embassy. There's no way they're. No way they're going to, they're, he's, he's not going to move the embassy eventually. They're not going to you know or 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 within within American politics also. Oh, Trump is going to come on and he'll just fold over for NATO like everybody else or you know. Or in the middle of, a, of the worst world health crisis in a hundred years, defunding the WHO. Like, <laughs> like who? So, like who does these things? So I, I'm like, I'm I, I'm much more skeptical about my about uh, saying nah, This is just one of those things that is not, is going to blow over, not going to happen. Was that clear the way I said it? I'm not I, yeah, no, no, I understood, I mean, and I and I absolutely sympathize with your position because that side is pulling me also. But, you know, it's the guy falling from the 10-story building, and as he passed the sixth floor, somebody else, how's mm-hmm. it going? And he says, so far, I'm okay. The status quo okay. is the status quo as long as it lasts. At some point, yeah. it's not the status quo anymore. So right. I, I definitely— and, and that's what, obviously, this has been, a, you know, the Trump has been 
administration, and I think you know Netanyahu is is riding those coattails at times on you know breaking status quo, breaking disruption, and and this would be a, a, a you know a huge break in the status quo. Look, I also what makes me a little depressed, Kalev, is when you frame this moment as this perfect storm of forces where rhetoric and politics suddenly makes policy sort of come to be. That's very Middle Eastern. That's very, you know, that's how that's how uh, Egypt and Jordan and Syria got into the war in 67. That's how these somehow these these th- this language and diplomacy and, and politics suddenly manifest into reality because they take on a momentum of their own. So that's another reason that I think that's an argument for Alan's side. It depresses me to see it happening in Israel, where we used to have leaders who had firm convictions and they would they hey, sorry it brought us World War One too. It brought us World War One too. That's exactly what World War One was, and <laughs> and could have been the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, it's not it's yeah. not good statescraft, I don't think. But I, I agree with your analysis, Kalev. What do you think? Do you want to level in in the Foolhardy I mean, work of prediction. I, I, I'm, I constantly get predictions wrong. Like, yeah. You know, from from the Trump embassy thing to, to, to everything to how the elections yeah. are going to be. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd say this: there is a there is a realistic scenario. Yeah. In which uh, Gantz, who is is probably lukewarm, it's difficult also to know what Gantz thinks. He's probably lukewarm on annexation. Mm-hmm. He, as defence minister, brings the brings IDF officials to brief the cabinet, and they kind of emphasise the real danger to stability in Jordan and to the peace treaty, mm-hmm. the real danger uh, to uh, stability in 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 the West Bank. Um, so they do that. The right wing, I'll call it the messianic right wing. Um, are pumping from the other side, saying you cannot agree mm-hmm. to the Trump plan because you're Trump giving away seventy percent. Strangulates mm-hmm. fifteen settlements. It creates balloons out of others. It will stop us expanding. So you can't you can't support the Trump plan. Um, the Europeans ramp up the pressure, which they've been doing, sending letters, etc., saying we're going to reevaluate our relations, etc., um, and. And somehow, through all of those things, politically, it, it, it doesn't become worth it anymore. There, there is a scenario like that. But listen, I, I did if it was yesterday or, or, or two days ago, Netanyahu explicitly said one of the six things we're going to be doing uh, is is um, is is annexation. It was a bit. It was ironic because the thing just before annexation was dealing with the ICC, the International mm-hmm. Criminal Court. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to go to the ICC, the best way of not going is is not annexing. Um, so I'm not sure that necessarily makes makes so much sense. But again, there's a realistic scenario where pressure from the far right and the centre left and the Europeans and the Arab world, and then maybe Pompeo saying, "Listen, it's it's our map or nothing" kind of thing, and then it gets closer to November, and then the window closes. That is a possibility. But Netanyahu has climbed up a, a, a tree, um, and the ease and the hardest thing when you've climbed up a tree is is, is to get down. The easier thing is just to plow to plow on. So um, unless you're Bibi I, Netanyahu, I could, who simply jumps to the limb of another tree and swings, you, know, you didn't think existed before. You didn't even it see that other he tree. Finds a new tree. Yep. And, exactly. Exactly. And, and then half the population suddenly think it's it's 
it was always there and it's, it's a genius move. Yeah, he knows the promise of it excites people, so it gets votes. But the execution might upset them once, God forbid, you know, security it crumbles. So then people will get angry at him. So he, so he, he somehow weaves this path of promising but not executing so that every, and, and, and not taking the blame for the lack of execution somehow. Isn't there something else to say about Netanyahu, uh, to his credit? He he is a very cautious leader. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, even when even when troops went into Gaza, uh, it was it was quite late on, and, and he he didn't really want to. So there he is a constantly takes where, hit from his right flank that he's too exactly he's too exactly. cautious. In many ways, Netanyahu certainly was. I don't know if he still is, but he certainly was the responsible adult. In, 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 in the room when all of the right wing were saying, you know, you've got to hit them hard and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. Um, so there's a scenario where he also comes to realise that, that all of these threats, the collapse of the PA, mm-hmm. uh, stability in Jordan, maybe the peace treaty, um, uh, slowing down or cancelling normalisation with the Arab states, uh, hitting the EU in kind of, you know, uh, uh, in, a, in a way that creates tension, etc., it's just not worth it. There, mm-hmm. there is a scenario like that, but on a level of rhetoric, that's not the direction we're going in. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it is, it is, it is hard to predict. And and, and I, the, I guess the only thing I would say is, in a democracy, you would hope that the politic, the part, one of the ideas of a democracy, I think, is that you want the political. Uh, uh, advantages to come from doing what's in the best interest of the people. You win the most for the people. That's how you win and stay in power. And so, although it's disconcerting that politics seems to be driving issues that should be more soberly debated about what's actually in the best interest, maybe at the end of the day, somehow, and whatever it is, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know what the smartest thing to do is. You know, I have my opinions, but for what they're worth. But in the end of the day, it could be that there it will be, and I think, and I, and I would argue this in favor of Netanyahu, that at the end of the day, as a rule, when it comes to security issues, he does do what's ultimately, you know, that's sort of best, best for Israeli stability choice. And that's why he ultimately is so successful politically, because we have a pretty stable life in a very difficult, tumultuous region of the world. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so here we are. Uh, so my vote yeah. is sound and fury signifying nothing. Alan's vote is change the status quo. And Kalev's is a cautious, it could be that Mike is right. <laughs> I thought his was more like it could be the rhetoric is bringing us to Alan. No, I said it in a, I said it in a way that whatever happens, I can then say that I was, I was right. correct. That I yeah, exactly. Correct. That's you know perfect, we did, well, perfect pundit. Exactly. When we exactly. introduced you, we didn't exactly. say pundit, but that was beautiful punditry. But I don't mean that as an insult. I mean uh, that was very clarifying and enlightening and informative, and it helped yeah. put all the pieces of this very complicated puzzle together. I think in a way that's super duper right. helpful, so that both for us and also obviously for our listeners. Uh, you know, you see the headlines and what what is going on, and I think you've really given us uh, that deeper insight and context. So thank you so much, Kalev. Right, we really, you. really thank appreciate you, that. Was terrific. Uh, thank you, Alan. Thank you, Mike. And thank you to Ben, who will engineer this into something people can listen to. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Macomb Israel Teachers Lounge podcast. Don't forget to share, subscribe, rate, and review. Join us next time.